sitting with uh, this uh, old lady who suffered, you know, everything, Holocaust, the Israeli wars, loss. And she was like mm, gray from sorrow. And she said, I don't want to live in a world with such cruelty inside of it. And I told her, I said her name and I said, please look around you and tell me, is this a world that you would want to live in and she looked she as you as you did at night she was raising her head and she was looking gazing around and it was loaded with things that people gave you know food uh, clothes uh, uh, and volunteers from all kinds and then she had tears in her eyes but good tears and she said I don't know where these angels came from I told myself this is like inferno and heaven in the same floor, strange floor in David Hotel in the Dead Sea and uh, this is life. Welcome to Raw, a podcast where we confront the complexities of war from the inside out. I'm Manouk, a journalist, author, yoga teacher, and meditation practitioner. Raw, or war spelled backwards, symbolizes how many of us feel in the face of the Israel-Gaza conflict, exposed, vulnerable, and seeking understanding. Here, we don't just discuss the external battles, but dive deep into our internal struggles, examining how this violence has shaken our very core. Join me in conversations with philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual leaders as we explore how to navigate these painful times with wisdom and resilience, finding guidance for our own paths through this raw, unfiltered world. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Merav Roth, who is a clinical psychologist, a trainer of psychoanalysts, and an interdisciplinary researcher of psychoanalysis and literature. In our conversation, Merav speaks about her experience driving down to the Dead Sea on October 8th to be with the survivors of Kibbutz Be'eri, families who were going through the worst horrors imaginable, and the guidelines she created for therapists dealing with the ongoing trauma. She ended up staying there for weeks and has since been working to help bereaved families and children, hostage families, and hostages who have returned from Gaza. She also speaks about her own resilience, ingrained in her by her famous family. And we speak about the obligation to continue to live life from a place of deep compassion and self-compassion. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start with something a little different today. I thought we would do a little check-in. 
Mm. So I'll go first. Good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I just dropped off my kids. My son wouldn't say goodbye to me. He was angry with me because I insist that he do a private English class at home. My <laughs> husband is American. I'm Belgian. I'm, I speak French with them. My husband speaks English, but I want him to learn to to read and write in English. And he was he was angry with me. Um, and so for the first time since he since he was born, he went away and he didn't want to say goodbye. And he, he just uh, <laughs> so, you know, we're here to talk about such serious, big, gut wrenching life turning events. And yet we we all at any given point come into every moment also with with so much stuff. That's true. Um, so. So I'm just kind of feeling a little bit of sadness, mm. you know, and then a little bit of guilt also that my sadness is directed at at such a simple thing and not at the enormity of the war or that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy that others are going through. So, so there's a little bit of that. Um, and then there's meeting you for the first time. How are you this morning? What are you coming in with? First of all, I think that what you're saying is is so true about all of us now, including me. I, but I will begin with what you're saying because, you know, in therapy, in analysis, people come these days at the beginning of the war, but also in like general um, heavy days like Yom Kippur or uh, whatever, and Yom Azikaron, and they say, uh, how can I speak about this? small things now I feel guilty to even think about it and I always tell them we are trying to allow ourselves to live our lives and we do feel guilty for uh, the privilege to just live our lives to be to feel sorry that your son left and didn't say goodbye nicely to his mother because he was angry these small gifts of life and uh, and it's it's very very hard these days to to combine to combine i i was just um launching a new book the true love is the love of truth which has a lot to do with everything but i was really ambivalent about celebrating the the publishing of the book because now And, and this woman wrote to me in Facebook, isn't it the banality of evil? Think, she said, to think about love and truth in these days when in Gaza, this and that. And, and I wrote to her, and I and, and really believe it, that I, I was also ambivalent. I, I felt, I asked myself the same question, and then I thought, no, 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 quite the other way around. We need to to meditate about love we need to meditate about truth mm -hmm. and about connectedness mm -hmm. uh, now more than ever so so i'm holding the same combination fragile combination what's interesting to me is i think that war is kind of like taking a deck of cards and throwing it all up in the air and then just having to see where things land you kind of think of everything anew things that we mm -hmm. we didn't necessarily have to think about our 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 identities our identities as 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 Jews as Israelis as women um our place in the world 
uh, our ability to help, our powerlessness, our desire to, to, to feel joy despite it all. I mean, there's so much internally that's happening. And that's mm -hmm. why... I call this podcast raw, which is, you know, which is war backwards, because I think that's how so many of us are, are, are going about our daily lives is, is feeling completely raw. And yet a lot of people, um, I think, maybe have um, an ambivalent also feeling towards that rawness. They, they maybe don't really want to feel it. Um, there's this quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a psychiatrist, and she, she used to tell people, uh, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, and that's okay. We're all not okay, um, and that's really okay. And I want to say that to our listeners also, that um, whatever they come in with, whatever you're coming in with, um, when you're listening to this podcast at this very moment, whatever you are coming in with, whether it's absolute joy because you've just celebrated an anniversary or because you've just done something great or you've had a great night's sleep or whether it's uh, whether you're distraught or whether you feel like you're unworthy or not good enough or um, whether you're feeling sad or, or whatever it is you're coming in with that is absolutely welcome and okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about your work these last few months because you've really stepped up um, in so many ways. Uh, and we were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and you told me everything that you'd been doing. And I said, wow, hmm. how are you doing all that? I mean, aren't you kind of running out of steam? And you told me that's just how you operate since since forever. You yeah. you kind of feel the call, the, the, the hour of need, and you just step in. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing. When I teach, I say about what you said just now about uh, everything is okay or we are okay by also being not okay. I always say that refusing uh, or denying what is going on takes a lot of energy. Mm. And uh, I, uh, Melanie Klein was saying that we have like two attitudes, two possible attitudes. One is to, to refuse, you know, wh whatever is going on by... by by our defensive mechanisms, primitive defensive mechanism of splitting and denial and, and projection, you know, you're bad, I'm good, the world is black and white, da da da. And the other way is to, to, to re what you said, to accept what is. I, I call it in Hebrew, laskin um, imamitziut, which is an accept, an overall acceptance that includes. In Laskin, there is Sakana and Miskenut and Sukhnut. There is uh, mm. being feeling sorry or sad and, and feeling the dangers in life, but also having the agency to, to confront it and mm. to take care of it. So I, I teach it, and I, I wrote uh, a poem that um, Shlomo Gronich was uh, uh, composing and singing, uh, and it's called Kacha That's how it is now. And it was about uh, being old. He, he called me and he said, listen, I'm old. No one talks about it. No one writes about it. Please write a song about it. And I said, wow, that's challenging. And mm. then the war came and I keep on saying, first of all, we, we need to know where we are. That's how it is now. And, and then to confront it and to do our best 
to 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 you know to take care of everything that we can take care of and to to differentiate what we cannot take care of it's the serenity prayer that you just reminded me of it says god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference exactly exactly and this is crucial in traumatic events and in traumatic times because for instance watching the the instagram horrendous films from october 7 people are going there and they're watching it and watching it you know and they're going to the place where they have no control where they lost all control when the most traumatic thing happened so and they unconsciously they think okay i will go there and i will amend it i will correct it i will repair something but you cannot it will it's in the past it's terrible and but now if you if you in hebrew i say lit akhshev to to come to now uh, but now you have a lot that you can control that you can contribute to so so this movement we we need to all the time take care of it gently i do think a lot of people who are, might be listening you know, a lot of people have anxiety and anxiety is just you know the mind attaching itself to some thought that is not right now Yes. right unless there is a siren and we have to run to the shelter or there is some emergency but then there is, then it's not anxiety right it's fear mm. and, and it's concrete and it's good because it's signaling right what we need to do so anyway that 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 was a, a yeah. that was a, a, yeah. a, a sidetrack but um uh, tell us a little bit about your work your yes. your, your your very difficult work Uh, dealing with people who have been bereaved and have lost everything in the most traumatic of ways. Yeah. So first of all, on October 8th, I, I called a, a therapist from the South asking her if she thinks that the, the therapist there would want like a Zoom event with me, just telling them how do we deal with this terrible event now. And she said, yes, of course. And it, two hours, there were like dozens of, of therapists. And, and I wrote uh, 10 guidelines of how to meet the people in this very, very traumatic moment. So we're talking about the people, the first circle. So the, those the, are the people yes, who yes, were directly... Who were in the massacre, mm-hmm. who, were, who, were, who were really attacked uh, themselves, their families, uh, lost family members, kidnapped family members. Actually, in the beginning, most of them didn't know what is going on with seven, some members of the family because they were missing. And then the day after, I went, um, <laughs> some, somehow coincidentally, because my, my daughter, Netta Roth, she's an actress, she's a young actress, and she, and she does this uh, TV series, Levad Babait, Alone at Home, that children love. So at noon, I called her and I said, Neta, where are you? She said, I'm on my way to the Dead Sea. And I said, what? The, you know, sirens, war. I said, what, what are you? And she said, I wrote on Facebook in the morning, where do children need me most? And someone said, the Dead Sea. So I, I'm on the way to the Dead Sea. Wow. And my husband is a, is a psychologist too. So I said, listen, Danny, I think Neta is right. We need to go to the Dead Sea. And we went. 
And, and I thought, I told him, I have these 10 guidelines and I'm sure therapists are already gathering there. Let's, let's go and I'll, I'll try to, to, to help. To. And I thought, I took a small bag. I thought we're coming back that night tomorrow. And we stayed for two weeks. We couldn't move. We couldn't move. It was, I will never forget these, these, these weeks. Um, so just for context, the Dead Sea was where, a lot, where well, some of the hotels yes, were, yes, where a yes, lot of the, the people from the south yes. were evacuated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the people from, uh, we went to David Hotel where the people from Barry kibbutz who is one of the which is one of the kibbutz that was massacred in the most brutal brutal terrible way so they were evacuated there on october 8th and uh, we met them and it was like inferno you know and people were it's interesting i think people imagine wild atmosphere but it was so quiet it was so quiet it, they, they were like uh, shadows they were really, really shocked. Many of them were like 20 hours under fire. Houses burned. They're inside waiting for someone. To, so, you know, we know the details, but each time we think about it, it's, it's, in, in, it's very hard to capture. So in, in, in your life prior to October 7th, I imagine that most of the time when you're meeting people that you're helping... They come in with things that that happened to them, you know, in the in the past, and and somehow, you know, they make their way to you. In this case, you 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 saw almost trauma as it was happening. It's it's true and not true because I'm working with parents for small children who died um, mm. by coincidence, like were stayed in the car and died or, or drowned in the Zimmer, uh, and they usually come immediately. So I, I actually, I think it's not, it's not by, by, by coincidence that I went there and that I felt that I have something to give, including my second generation um, history, and uh, I lost my sister when I was 18, so, so I know trauma intergenerationally, personally, and then I'm working with the traumatic loss for many years. And they they tell each other during the Shiva and they come right after. So I do meet people for many years in, in the midst of hell, you know. Um, but at the same time, it's not 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, it was, it's not a, a whole community. It was very, very, very strong, and and we we just founded like um, in a, a small organization inside the hotel, forty therapists, and we started working with individuals, with groups. We made we we founded groups for each age, and for the foreign workers, for the elderly, for mothers, for babies, etc. And I was working with uh, the leadership of the kibbutz who had these. Very challenging questions like, you know, a family where two kids lost their two parents and two brothers. Do we tell them each time differently? Do we uh, bury them each time, uh, the one that we know about? Or do we wait for, you know, unbearable questions, but we had to face them. And also, since I work and think all the time about ourselves as uh, 
like living between life instinct and death instinct. From the first moment I told the therapists and I met the people with a smile, we're speaking about my smile, saying good morning, smiling, this is already therapeutic. You, you can give something immediately because inside these people, like in you, they also ask themselves, do we have a right to smile? Do we have a right to wake up in the morning while we are here and we don't know what about our children or our father, our grandfather? Do we have a right to breathe? And I, was, I kept telling them in every manner I could, of course you have. That's your obligation. And we don't want to die from sorrow. We want to live with sorrow. Mm. And sorrow is part, part of life. But, so it's, it's uh, a practice that we, we, we really we, we worked with from the first moment very, very strongly. It was like a proactive psychoanalysis, which is not <laughs> the usual mm. um, method. It was proactive. And from there, uh, it went that I, I started working with the uh, officers of the intelligence forces and uh, with the uh, psychologists of the army and then with Matea um, Mishpachot, with the uh, organization that works with the families of the kidnapped uh, hostages, with the hostages. And, and I also founded with two friends of mine, Ofrit Shapir Berman and Iris Gavriel Gerhabi, So we founded um, an organization, uh, hundreds of analysts that are working from really the, f the beginning of war with the families of the murders and the families of the hostages. And after 50 days, also with the freed hostages that we are working with. Is there one or two stories that you can share from that time that really stayed with you and that really... Um, maybe change the way you view things or taught you something about about the work you're doing? I, I think, yeah, um, there is a story that I keep telling, but I will tell it again because it happened. There were two stories that happened the first day, so they were, like, like, you know, very mm -hmm. strong in me. One is a girl that told me I feel guilty. She just said it. She was, I think, nine or ten because I, all my family is alive and here. And I asked her, wow, uh, do, do you think that if a friend of yours would not be in Barry uh, on October 7th and she, she wouldn't even experience all that, you would be angry with her? And she was smiling and she said no. And she, she said a, a name of a friend of hers who is abroad. And she see she's abroad and I'm so happy that she didn't experience it. And I said, so can you please, please be as generous to yourself as to your friend and, and know that it's so fine, so good that everybody, and you have more strength and you can help your friends and that's good. And she was like relieved. So small story. And another one was sitting with uh, this uh, old lady who suffered, you know, everything, Holocaust, the Israeli wars, loss. And she was like, gray from sorrow and she said I don't want to live in a world with such cruelty inside of it and I told her I said her name and I said please look around you and tell me 
is this a world that you would want to live in? And she looked, she, as, you, as you did at night, she was raising her head and she was looking, gazing around, and it was the, the, the basement floor of the hotel. And it was loaded with things that people gave, you know, food, uh, clothes, uh, uh, and volunteers from all kinds. And then she had tears in her eyes, but good tears. And she said, I don't know where these angels came from. Oh. And I said, well, so this is also the world you live in, right? And, and it was very strong for me to, to feel how the life instinct wants us to, 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 you know, to give it a hand and to pull it back to, to action. And I told myself, this is like inferno and heaven in the same floor, strange floor in David Hotel in the Dead Sea. And uh, this is life. And that's where we are in the most extreme place of, you know, of our being. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's so interesting and it makes me think about the um the negativity bias which is which is ingrained in in human psychology since we were you know uh, around millions of years ago and and made sense because we were uh we were not the apex predator and we were living amongst other predators and we had to We had to be careful. We had to make sure the lion wasn't eating us. And so our human psychology kind of evolved to, to look for potential negative, um, dangerous things. Uh, and, and even today, that's what, uh, you know, in, in our modern society, a lot of people are stuck in that kind of fight, flight, freeze mode that is really more appropriate for when a lion is coming to eat you. Or, God forbid, when, when a Hamas terrorist is, is entering Israel. In those moments, the fight-flight-freeze is, is one of the most uh, extraordinary um, uh, methods that, that humans have invented, you know, to raise adrenaline and to, and to run and to survive. Um, but we're stuck in that mode a lot of the time because, um, because social media, for example, we just, like you said, we keep reliving it and reliving it and reliving it. And our minds have that ability, that kind of extraordinary, but, but dangerous ability to feel like we're still in that moment. Um, and, and I think it's important to continue to come back to the present, like you allowed that, that older lady to do. And in any given moment to look around us and to say right now, My body is safe. My children are safe right now. Mm-hmm. I can make decisions about the future, et cetera. But right now I'm safe. And I think you, you'll tell me if I'm, I'm right, but I believe that a lot of Israeli society, not even, not even the people who have gone through the worst of the trauma, but a lot of Israeli society is stuck in that fight, flight, freeze mode. Yeah, I think uh, in, in general the time zone is, is, is very strange in traumatic periods it's like going very fast and very very slow at the same time and we all feel it's October 7 like an ongoing October 7 and also because the hostages are still there we cannot it, it's a very complicated trauma because trauma usually and that is a differentiation from the traumas that I'm dealing with uh, throughout my lifetime of work I I, I, I think that when The trauma is ended and you can begin to mourn 
and you know where you are but we are I'm working with the with a family uh, the hostages family organization and I'm working with the freed hostages so when I'm sitting with a freed hostage a mother of two children who came with them back from Gaza and with her mother and she tells me I cannot begin anything with Because my husband is still there, mm. she cannot begin to mourn. She said, I cannot begin to mourn about my murdered father until my husband will come back. So it's so challenging for the mind to hold all this complexity. And I think all the Israelis feel the same, that they cannot really step forward when the hostages are kept in captivity. It's like, it's mind-blowing. If we would really concentrate it, we would all shout all the time. It's, so we are holding ourselves in one piece. And as we said, we, we need to, to keep our strength and our, our positive thinking deeply. I, I, I don't mean shallow positive thinking, but really concentrating on what is important in life and why it is important to, to, to keep connecting to... Uh, solidarity and to to care and to empathy to empathize with the other in general and etc but it's very challenging because it's not ended it's still going on but I do think that we all the time have the life instinct at our service and and uh, and also intergenerational traumas at our service to, to, to remember that we do have a Whenever we think there is no th- strength anymore, there is more. There is more. There is more and it keeps us going and, and needs to keep us going. Mm. When you say intergenerational trauma at our service, you mean that looking at what, what our forefathers have gone through mm-hmm. and, and taking resilience from that. Yes. Uh, and there was one moment... Um, In, in, uh, in the Dead Sea, I went uh, with my husband. We, we did, uh, I don't know how you say, Pesuramara, bitter, bitter, uh, when we, you tell a family that you found out that his family member died. Mm. So there was this unit. We went from family to family to tell them whenever they identified a body. And there were these two kids that I was talking about beforehand that her par- father, mother, and two brothers died. And we went there to say that the father was identified. All of a sudden, I thought, wow, Danny's father lost his parents. My father lost his father in the Holocaust. And we are there in the room. These kids lost their father now. And I said, like, like to the air, I said, you know, kids, Danny's father and my father, they also lost their parents in the Holocaust. And they were happy people. They were fat, happy. <laughs> they had us as kids. They had grandchildren. They had a meaning in their lives. So you need to know that. And I just said it. I knew that they cannot really, really concentrate on what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Maybe not even listening, but their unconscious is there and it's listening. It's like when we interpret in therapy, we don't care if your conscious listens. We care if your unconscious listens. So it was a, a strong moment for me to, to really feel that the, the trauma of the past helps me 
to give them, them something and to know for them, to know for them that they do have a future, even after the most terrible traumas, you do have a future if you uh, metabolize deeply what you went through, which is our job as therapists in Israel now, to work with all these thousands and thousands of people to, to metabolize, to, to work through their losses and their, their, and as you said, their identity, crisis, etc., etc. Where does, where do you think that your strength comes from? You're, 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 you're clearly an extremely resilient oak. You don't look like an oak, you're a petite woman, but you're, 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 you're <laughs> you like, say oak to a woman. Oak of a person, you know, an oak tree is just like, you know, unshakable. You can mm. have like, you know, the, the, the wind can blow in any direction and the leaves will rustle, but the, the, the core is there. So it was a compliment uh, to your <laughs> yeah, psyche. <it's> okay. <laughs> where, okay. where does that strength come from? Is it genetic? Is it your environment when you grew up as a child? How do you not break dealing with the most horrendous of circumstances? Uh, I think it's, uh, bo- I think it's both genet- genetic. I, I, my, my, my brother wrote a, f- a book about my father's life named uh, Memories After My Death. Your, your brother, Yair Lapid, about your, your father. That's yes. true, that's true. And, and uh, he writes there in the name of my father because it's like my father's telling his story. It's like an autobiography that was told before for my family. So he said there, uh, optimists people are optimistic because they were born optimistic. <laughs> so there is this genetic thing, I guess. But also I think I was raised uh, in a family where we, my father talked about his traumas openly and he allowed himself to feel everything. He cried, he laughed, He loved everything very strong. He was angry sometimes, very strong, not, not towards us. He treated his family like uh, holding, I don't know, a pea in a his palm of his jewel. hand. Yeah. yeah, like a precious jewel, but outside in you know, politics and stuff. So he, everything was out in the open and was there for us to, 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 to contemplate on and to, to speak about. And, and I think it's, it's similar because I, I can sit with a patient or with the people I work with now, of course, and, and, and tears will go down my face. And so, so I do feel deep sorrow, deep, deep sorrow. Sometimes, but I also feel deep love and deep connectedness, and I think the integration of all of that gives us strength, gives us uh, resilience. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and as I'm listening to you and I hear my question to you, I, I, I can imagine that there are listeners who don't feel that resilience and who might, you know, hear about the things that you're doing and thinking like, Wow, you know that's extraordinary and 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 if someone else is doing that and I'm not, then I'm not good enough. Um, and that's again coming back to that place of where are we now? Who are we? What is the baggage that we come with? What is the genetic makeup that we come with and the history that we uh, were 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 born through and and with and um, and I think from that place, We can each find what in all absolute authenticity 
Mm -hmm. We can be and do that is of service. And that could be being of service to ourselves. It can be being of service to others. It has to come from a place of authenticity. And it can be as simple as as smiling to someone in the street, as being kind to the cashier at the supermarket, as taking a deep breath and, and, and allowing ourselves to go out for a walk or, or for a massage when we feel like we need it. I think that's important to say because, you know, I'm speaking with people like you who have extraordinary resilience because I want to talk about the tools that people can mm-hmm. learn from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I want people to know again, it's okay to just be not okay. Yes. So I'm coming yes, back to yes, that as well. Yes, yes, yes. You're so kind. You keep on thinking about the people who listen and <laughs> <laughs> wanting to help them. That's so sweet. Yeah, I I, 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 I guess you're so right. I, I, I feel lucky that I can do because it's my, my it's my work it's my, it's what i do and and i think it's very very true that people c- must allow themselves it's important that we also have normality it's important if people want to go want to go to a concert or to sit in a cafe with a friend and not being of service at that moment that is being of service this is very important we we otherwise the hamas won As a psychoanalyst, I wanted to ask you about men in politics. But then, of course, I'm thinking about your brother, Yair Lapid, and I don't want to make it awkward. But I often have this um, this feeling, based on what I'm seeing, that politicians, you know, and most of them are men, and that's why I said men in politics, but politicians, they might be very smart, and they might have a lot of knowledge, But a lot of the times, it looks to me like their egos have not evolved, like their egos are still stuck in the childhood playground, in the, you know, you did it to me, so I'm going to do it to you. I'm going to show you who was more powerful. I'm wounded in my ego because years ago, someone said something to me, and therefore now I always want to show everybody that I, you know, that I'm in control, and I'm in power, and I'm going to put you down, and and. I'm just wondering when, you know, you have both, you're, you're a psychologist, but you also have in your, in your family, someone who's in politics. When you look at that, at, at, and most of the people in politics, do, do you have that same feeling that they all need a lot of therapy? <laughs> um, I think most of the people could uh, find therapy useful. Um, I think I, what I would want for a politician is to have, not to be smart, but to have wisdom, and there's a big difference. Uh, and I sit with Yair every Tuesday, just the two of us, to think. You know, you need to go to, to, to think on what is going on and to combine wisdom with ethical standards, with ethical attitudes. Um, and for that, you really need to be more mature psychologically. I agree with you on that. And uh, I think it's a very fast world. And it's all, uh, the, the, the sad thing is that it's going with rating, you know, because uh, elections is about rating. And, and you need to be very, very strong in order not to let this lead your way. Mm. But to keep thinking what is really, really the best thing for people and for and for our minds and for our 
uh, psychological uh, resilience and to, to let this be your um, your anchor and your um, your compass yes compass exactly mm. so and uh, yeah yeah it's challenging it's it's a very tough world it's a very I don't I, I don't I don't envy them it's a very tough world yeah ear is very strong he's a very very strong personality and he's very strong in knowing that he will not move one step far from what he believes in I want to go to a point which is extremely I think sensitive um, and which I, I do try to come back to in my podcasts even though I feel like that's That's the kind of shadow that we don't want to look at and don't want to talk about, which is the suffering that's happening in Gaza right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that anything that we kind of put in a little box and, and close and, and, and aren't willing to face ends up eating us up. We live in a world where, like you said, everything is us versus them. We're so wounded As a, as a nation, as a, as a religion, as an ethnicity, as a, in our psyche, not only what, by what happened on October 7th, by, but by the enormous rise in anti-Semitism and delegitimization and non-truths that are being told, um, that I feel like we were tracked into kind of, a, a, a again, a, a kind of child that feels that, you know, it's, uh, we're right, they're wrong, and, 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 we, and as, a, as a result, we... dehumanize mm -hmm. um, and I see v almost nothing about the suffering happening in Gaza on Israeli TV um, if if I read about it it's through you know the New York Times or international channels that I feel like Israelis aren't getting it's complicated because I think the reason that they don't show it to us now is that uh, many many young people are at war now fighting and it's very difficult to hold everything together um, I think if the soldiers or the soldiers parents would think about each person that is wounded or or, or mm. being killed uh, and concentrated on it it, it it would be very very challenging to keep to keep uh, fighting and we need to fight because Uh, the people of Barry have a right to go back home. And the situation is so terrible because uh, these people are really uh, die. They die without being, most, most, most of them, without being guilty of everything, anything but growing up in Gaza. And I think the world, does, the world does not understand is the difference, but also the Israelis sometimes, the difference between Hamas and the Gaza people mm -hmm. and between the religious uh, crazy fanatics, fanatics and the, the regular people in Gaza. And that's, that's horrid. And, uh, and Hamas is also, in, in this sense, Hamas was uh, slaughtering their people as our people. There are Really, they are to be ex accused of what is going on in Gaza. And I think we need to cry about each child that dies in the world, including the children of Gaza. So we are in an absolutely impossible situation. If we don't attack, we are attacked. So it is the most primitive, primitive thing of their children in front uh, Versus, or our children yeah. it's terrible it's terrible and i do 
agree with you deeply that we need to uh, to remember that the children of Gaza were not born we can be born optimistic we are not born murderers mm. they are not murderers they are children and that's so terribly terribly sad what is going on there and women it's so absurd that we are to this point mm. the same bloodshed for years and years and years it's like I sometimes I ask myself from the Bible didn't we learn anything about Just you know circles mm-hmm. vicious circles of bloodshed really yeah <laughs> wow yeah. it's like the you know millennia of evolution and yeah. enlightenment and Freud and you know all of that and we're just back here we're back in the biblical uh, stories there is a, there is a small uh, correspondence between Freud and Einstein uh, And they asked them it's called war why they asked each other why why there are still wars and Freud says until men will know uh, that violence is within them and that they project it on the other and then try to murder the other because he's now uh, like uh, he taken we projected on him our mm-hmm. own violence until we acknowledge that wars will continue. Which is so beautiful that yeah. we you know if each of us will know that there is life instinct and death instinct inside of us, there is violence and there is compassion inside of us and also in the other, then we cannot dehumanize anyone and we can be compassionate even about the other's violence, but you know but speak about it and and negotiate about it in instead of projecting all evil on the other and then try to kill this. evil that we just projected and that's why I think um, you know I, I I come back to that idea that if only politicians on all sides went you know to sit on the couch for a few months and can and we have analyzed. can we do it few years <laughs> a few years <laughs> and analyze their own you know internal violence and and the, the projections that they that how they projected onto others I think we would be in a much much better place I just want to um to end with these uh with these couple of quotes that uh that I That always speak to me is just a sentence by Khalil Gibran, uh, who says, "Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls, the most massive characters are seared with scars." And it brings me back also to that story of those two boys who lost everything, and my prayer for them that the suffering, the trauma, will not only be a burden to bear, but something that will bring out of them their most extraordinary compassion and love of life. Mm. Um, and then there's this quote by Rumi who says, keep your eye on the wounded place. That's where the light shines through. Mm. And uh, that's beautiful. I just want to leave, you know, like you said, I'm thinking about our, our listeners and uh, I just want to leave them with these two quotes. And um, is there anything that you would like to share to people um, with people who are listening based, based on your experience these last few months, some, some words of hope? I, I, I always, I, I think that uh, the hope 
I get is from the people who who were under the most terrible uh, attack, and uh, they their eyes are full with compassion to each other. The communities are working together so beautifully, and uh, they give me strength. They show me how one can really rise up to its best uh, option in order to survive the worst situation. Thank you so much, Mirav. I appreciate you coming in. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you, too. Thank you for listening. This has been Raw. To listen to more of our episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Anu Glory. Goodbye. Goodbye.